This is the Read Your Bible Podcast, the daily podcast designed to help you understand and apply the scriptures. Nothing will grow your relationship with Jesus Christ more than studying the Bible for yourself. I'm your host, Drew Tankersley, and for the next few moments, I want to invite you to join me as we dive into God's Word together. We'll ask God to help us see what He wants us to see so that we can be who He wants us to be. The king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one of her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them and triumph. The verses of Daniel 11 and 12 read more like days of our lives meets King Arthur than the Bible. So what's going on? Who's the king of the north? Who's the king of the south? And what does all this mean? Well, when we left Daniel at the end of chapter 10, the prophet had been entirely overcome by the vision that he had received. That vision was none other than the Son of Man himself coming to speak with him. Daniel had spent years interceding for his people, begging for their forgiveness, and struggling to understand the prophetic visions that he had received. All the while, Daniel is likely instrumental in the same execution of those very dreams that God had given him. After consistently interceding for the people, God reveals to him that instead of pouring out the destruction of Deuteronomy chapter 28 for 2,300 years, as Daniel had initially thought, God would instead grant Israel a probationary return to the land at the end of the 70 years as prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25. That return would occur under King Cyrus, the Lord's servant predicted by Isaiah 40 and 45. All of this would culminate 490 years later, at the end of Daniel's 69 weeks with the advent of Christ himself. He would come not only to remove the penalty of their sin, namely their captivity, but also to redeem a people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. According to the new covenant outlined by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, that timeline would begin when King Cyrus invited the people to return to their land, but that return would not be without difficulty. The people living in the homeland were a nation of half-breeds whose half-hearted worship resembled Judah's worship before their exile. Now, if Judah was indeed to return to the land of promise and return to the Lord as Daniel had prayed, then that would mean they would have to reject the duplicity of the Samaritan interlopers. They would have to ask them not to be involved with the building and reconstruction of the temple. And so when Ezra and the others who returned refused their help, they discouraged the people and actively began to disrupt God's plans moving forward. 
They even sought to bribe the Persian officials back in the capital city. See Ezra chapter 4. These events send Daniel to desperate prayer, begging God to intervene in the plight of his people and their intention to restore the temple. Now we learn in chapter 10 that God heard Daniel's prayer for understanding from the very beginning, but he was delayed in coming for some 15 years to explain because of the fierce war with a mysterious spirit, someone called the spirit or the prince of Persia. This demonic influence was likely working to subvert the plan of God now revealed to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. As a result of his desperate prayer of repentance, Daniel was praying that God would forgive his people and that God would move among them and restore them back to their land. And so when God revealed that that's what he was going to do, then the forces of evil began to work in overtime to try to subvert those plans. Chapters 11 and 12 then recount for us the rest of the vision about the kings of Persia and the kings of Greece. The descriptions given to us here in these verses follow the timeline given from the very beginning of the book, that is, Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. They describe events that occur along that timeline with remarkable specificity and detail. Now, much has been made regarding these details, as theologians have argued their significance for years. What we do know here is regarding the rise of power of Alexander the Great, the warrior king who will, quote, rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. The prophecy correctly predicts Alexander's kingdom and then its splintering into four regions. These factions war for position and rule within the realm just as Alexander encouraged them to do. When asked on his deathbed who would rule the kingdom, Alexander's answer was probably the strongest. Indeed, this was precisely what occurred as these four nations embarked on what is known as the Syrian Wars. Now, as these kings of the north, the Babylonian region, or the Seleucids, and the kings of the south, Egypt under Ptolemy, vie for worldwide domination, caught in the middle geographically is the people of God in Palestine. And as the battle rages, the moniker king of the north and king of the south continues to be passed down to different leaders in the midst of this battle. Now, multiple descriptions and possible timelines emerge as the drama continues through the prophetic word in the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, and there are historical markers along the way. Now, which timeline is best to consider these things, if they describe past events or future events or some iteration of both, that's a matter of intense theological dispute far beyond the scope of our time together today. But there is a truth that we should consider as we close this chapter of the one story. Throughout the narrative of Daniel, we see time and time again one overarching truth. 
The truth is that God raises up and tears down kingdoms by his sovereign decree and by his perfect plans. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to judge Judah's sin. He raised up Cyrus to destroy Babylon and return the people to their land. He raised up Alexander to defeat the Medo-Persian Empire. He used all of it to bring us the Anointed One, the Messiah who would bring in everlasting righteousness and inaugurate a kingdom not made with hands, as we saw in Daniel chapter 2. This kingdom would destroy the kingdoms of the earth who raised their fist against his ultimate authority. And God uses every one of these kings as pawns in his hand to accomplish his purposes. Now we often read these prophetic passages and we get lost in nailing down specifics of God's timeline. But when we do this, we miss an essential truth. Ultimately, God knows what we do not, and we can trust him with the details that we cannot understand. God was actively executing his plan despite Daniel's inability to conceive of them completely. God knew what he was doing while Daniel was praying and asking for wisdom. God had the wisdom to think through every circumstance and the power to achieve what he was doing. The same is true in our lives today. We may not fully understand every nuance of Daniel 11 and 12 or how to read each of them correctly, but one thing is sure. God has planned, understands, and will empower each moment of history, and he can do whatever is necessary to bring it about. This knowledge should bring us peace and confidence, even if we don't receive clarity and understanding. Just as is the case with Daniel in chapter 10, there are battles to which we are not privy, things taking place of which we have no concept. Therefore, in the pieces of our story where we are left bewildered, not realizing why things have occurred, we should have the faith to trust God with what we may not fully understand. Even at the end of this book, Daniel is asking questions, and God's response to him is, you're going to have to trust me. This trust and faith honors God, and it mirrors the dedication employed by Daniel and his three friends in a foreign land that we've studied for the last few weeks. They had every bit as many questions as to why things were happening as they were as we might have, and yet their faith never wavered. And that consistent devotion honored God. May ours do the same. Because this is the only way we will get to the last verse of this book. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the days. So Father, help us to trust you with what we may not fully conceive. May our faith honor you in these days. May the miraculous things that we have seen be the basis of those that we have yet to see. And may we live with anticipation as to your return for us again. May you find us faithfully serving and fervently watching in prayer. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. 
While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.